accessing agent files. Brian Sovereign. Early 21st Century Anarchist. Creator and host of the podcast Sovereign Check. By the year 2021, the show would be instrumental in the downfall of various conservative ideologies in the government, helping usher in an incredible time. Hey, want to take a walk on the wild side and experience the bleeding edge of technology? Then get ready because it doesn't get much more edgy than this. You're in for a wild ride. You're listening to Sovereign Tech with your host, the man in triple black, the golden stallion of the tech world, Brian Sovereign. He's got a huge brain. And now here's Brian. Spilling the seed of liberty everywhere I go. And in fact, as you're hearing this, I am at the Liberty Forum in Manchester, New Hampshire. Yes, a, the lovely and hyper-intelligent Dr. Stephanie Murphy and I decided to spend uh, at least the weekend there, I believe. So do say hi if you happen to be hearing this and you're coming up on, I don't know, what whatever day that, that it's happening. But we're there. And uh, yes, the Golden Stallion, the man of tomorrow. Ready for another little episode of Sovereign Tech here. Uh, yeah, Dr. Brian Sovereign ready. No. <laughs> All right. Woo, let's do this. Um, God, so much to talk about, as always. I'm actually a full disclosure. I am recording this episode uh, like a week early because I will be at Liberty Forum. So this is uh, being done ahead of time. So if I didn't catch all the news coming out of Mobile World Congress, which we might talk about a touch of that uh, because it, it, it started, you know, they already started revealing things uh, from that, even though most of it's uh, nonsense. There are some intriguing things that get, did come out. Maybe I'll do a quickie or something uh, in the coming weeks about Mobile World uh, Congress. So because I, I used to enjoy going to Mobile World Congress, actually, it was in Barcelona. It was it was a good time. I used to go for uh, uh, one of the companies I actually worked for. I was able to go to, go to it a couple times. It was a yeah, interesting time, especially when it's on somebody else's bill, right? <laughs> so anyway, uh, but yeah, why don't we talk about a little mobile news? Let's get right into the random access here. And uh, then for our lead story, I will give you fair warning that we are going to step heavily into the realm of speculation and little into the realm. Or, well, I mean, there'll be fact. I, I don't like to speculate just willy nilly, but uh Let's do, let's do it. Let's get into the random access here and let's talk about a little mobile news. Uh, Silent Circle. Now, this is the company that uh, is notorious or infamous, though more accurately should be famous because uh, they're, they're rather heroic in the services that they had provided in the past. Silent Circle, you know, email, uh, red phone, you know, all, all that good stuff that Silent Circle offered. They were one. They are one of the companies that has done a great job of providing genuine security and, and privacy, easy to use services in the past. And they are behind the black phone. Now, the black phone is the phone uh, somewhat devised by Phil Zimmerman, the, the creator of PGP, uh, as well as other, uh, you know, security and privacy luminaries, you know, tech luminaries. Uh, it was the black phone was supposed to be the anti NSA phone. Now, Silent Circle developed this phone in conjunction with a company called Geek's Phone. And Silent Circle just this week actually bought, or two weeks ago now, I guess, bought Geek's Phone out. And so now they have absolute 100% control of 
black phone development. And this may mean, you know, I don't know what exact facilities Geek's phone had, but this may mean that they could possibly do their own, uh, maybe even their own chips. Or they could perhaps, it allows for a lot of, you know, at the hardware level, which a lot of people are concerned about right now, is things being done at the hardware level. I don't know if Geek's Phone has their own SIM cards or whatever, but I mean, maybe this will allow for uh, a really serious device. Because really all Silent Circle was providing, by and large, uh, was the privacy OS or private OS, whatever they called it, that came on Black Phone, which was a modified version of Android. So this is pretty exciting. Now, at the end of the day, again, this is something that's going to have a SIM card. Keep in mind about that, you know, what control uh, is given. Now, maybe they can somehow work around that control, but there's certain degrees of controls given to your mobile provider, uh, like Verizon or T-Mobile or whoever else, when you have a SIM card in a device. In a device. Keep that in mind. But the other part here uh, that, that I think is, that you have to keep in mind is I don't know how they're really going to solve, because if I'm not mistaken, black phone still had the Google play store on it. And that means you could still put on Facebook messenger, uh, Google plus, I don't know. Yeah, well, actually I think Google plus would have to come stock, right? Uh, whatever, you know, all these different things you would have to put on there. And those instantaneously, largely remove your hopes and abilities for privacy and perhaps even security. So regardless of how deep they go, you know, if, if they're still running the play store and they're still offering the ability for people to use those apps, unless people get to the point to where they don't want to use those apps anymore to where, you know, they don't want to be, you know, in those ecosystems and they don't want to, you know, just give away their information to these companies that are clearly giving it away to the NSA or whoever else, or you think, you know, just the, the atrocity that is Skype uh, as far as things go. So unless there's a mindset, all perhaps largely all the hardware changes in the world and all the software controls in the world that a company like silent circle can have, may not matter at all. There has to be a change in the mindset uh, of the user. So keep that in mind. It's, it's, it's great news. I, I'm glad to hear it, and I'm interested to see what comes out of this. Okay, but, uh, but at the end of the day, if there's not a mindset change in the user, well, what does it mean? So uh, switching gears a little bit. I, you know, we, we've talked about the Apple car a couple times on Sovereign Tech, and an interesting theory was brought to light for me, and it may well be true. And the theory goes with the Apple car is that it's not real at all uh, in that what it actually is, is that it's news. It's a whole concoction by Apple to get people excited about something, to get people talking about something other than the Apple watch, because the concern is now there's an event coming up soon for, for the Apple watch, but uh, it actually, it'll, it'll be, unfortunately, I won't be able to record this after that happens. So we'll have to talk about it after, cause I think it's March 6th when this, uh, this Apple events happening, but the, the, the concern is that Apple supposedly is that the Apple watch is going to be a flop. And I know that they've already, they're projecting to sell millions of units, even of the gold ones. They've, they've made five or 6 million of them. I don't know. Uh, but, at, but that's the theory is that the app, the Apple car is all is mostly hype. Yes. Steve jobs did say he wanted to make a car. It's true, but it's all hype to take the heat away from the Apple watch. You know, the flop that is going to be the Apple watch. I think that's a really interesting theory. 
Uh, and and that may be true. I mean, may, you know, th- this whole thing. I mean, th- this is something you got to kind of understand. And, and, you know, I talked about this last week on the last episode of Sovereign Tech, where I was like this whole leaking photos and leaking of information, you know, on the, the consumer level and all that. I, I think it's all nonsense. And part of the reason I think it's all nonsense is because most of the time these leaks are controlled leaks by the companies themselves. They want it to happen. They want you to, you know, it's like, oh, I got this picture of this iPhone 7 out in the wild. Apple sets it up. You know, it's all to create hype. It's all to generate, uh, you know, news and, and, you know, and, and maybe help. It'll get clicks for whatever website, you know, 9to5Mac or 9to5Google if it's an Android device or whatever the hell. It's all to generate clicks for those guys. And thus, then they get a favorable review for whatever device comes out. I mean, they're just, they're kind of all in bed with each other. There's very few genuinely independent uh, news resources. I like to think Sovereign Tech's one of them. Okay. Uh, you know, I, I, I haven't, I've never, uh, I've never charged for an ad that I've ever run. I just run the ads. I do it, uh, you know, largely out of the kindness of my heart, you know? <laughs> I mean, so, uh, you know, th- that keep that in mind that all this leaked info is often, it, it's it's just these companies playing chess and in conjunction with the journalists. Uh, it, it's it's all nonsense. So I think that's an interesting theory that the Apple card may just be crap. It may not be true at all, despite the legitimate hirings that have gone on. Uh, some of the very legitimate stuff that that are good clues to the fact that Apple might be building a card. Despite all of that, that may be just, you know, millions of dollars spent to help save the billions of dollars that a flop of an Apple watch could be. Okay. So, you know, billions of dollars of loss. So something to, that, that's pretty interesting, something to consider. And, and in fact, I'm, I'm kind of leaning towards that direction because it, it makes just a little too much sense that that's what's going on, but Hey, I could be wrong. Maybe the Apple watch will do great. You know, I, I don't think so. I, I still up hell. Uh, I talked about in the last episode, I want that LG G watch or Bain LTE. I want that beauty. That thing's amazing. And I found out it has, it can, uh, cause they talked about a mobile world Congress. Uh, it does have Bluetooth. So you can hook up a Bluetooth headset to it. So you can have that privacy talking on that phone or, uh, you know, using the watch as the phone. I am game on for that one. Uh, as, as far as like a, you know, a phone device, I, I love the idea. So anyway, uh, let's see what else we got. Well, this is, uh, you know, I have some, actually, this is some really unfortunate news. Uh, this is uh, a couple weeks ago and it, it lasted for a good, a good long while, uh, before they got it back up. I mean, this was a serious, you know, we, we talk about internet problems, you know, and you know, the problem of centralization and infrastructure. I mean, this was a huge, huge case that really highlighted and it affected a lot of people on the internet. This is one of the worst things uh, to happen in recent memory, in my opinion. But, uh, but a couple weeks ago, uh, AOL mail was down. Yeah, I said AOL Mail. <laughs> I, 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 I saw the story and I was just like, who the fuck's using AOL Mail? You know, besides George Bush's sister. <laughs> just, <laughs> sorry, I, I had to do it. It's just so funny. But maybe, maybe there's people that still use AOL mail. I don't know. I'm amazed they haven't done a purge yet. You know, that's a funny thing. I think it was Kevin Rose. Kevin Rose is talking with Leo Laporte on triangulation uh, a, a little while back. And they said, like, what's the next tech trend? And 
And Kevin Rose said, you know, it'd be awesome. He said, if it just became like hip to have an AOL address again, or to have a Yahoo mail address again, like that somehow that that'd be the cool thing. And if, you know, Yahoo a, a couple of years ago now, I guess they did that big purge where they reset uh, a lot of, if you hadn't logged into your email address in a while that they were going to yank it, you know, even if you had like a, you know, a really classic name, like say it was Brian at yahoo.com or something, uh, you know, that would get yanked if you hadn't logged in in a while and other people could start using it. So they kind of did a reset of their name register, you know, of their email registry. And if AOL did that, you know, just for the giggles, eh. <laughs> I would say, yeah, that's right. You can email sovereign tech at AOL.com, right? <laughs> I'm sure that hasn't been taken yet. I should probably go do it before this gets released. <laughs> so anyway, um, yeah, uh, just a, that's just a joke. I, I mean, it's true that the AOL mail was down, but the lovely hyperintelligent Dr. Stephanie Murphy would like to say something. Yes, I have, Stephanie. I have one client who uses AOL mail. You have a client that uses AOL mail? She's in her 60s. Does she pay you via pigeon? <laughs> she doesn't pay me anything. She doesn't pay you. <laughs> My gosh, she's from the time of AOL and there wasn't money. <laughs> oh, oh, that's right. Yeah. I did you, an audio book for her on royalty you, share. You did an audio book for, on royalty share. See that? I was just going to say it. I was going to say, look, if somebody uses AOL mail and you want to interact with them, get prepared to use the barter system. Because <laughs> Should have, oh, been a, should have been a bad sign. Should have been a, yeah, it was a bad sign. Anyway, <laughs> uh, if you still use AOL mail because, you know, you've been on the internet that long and you have one of those, that actually is kind of, kind of cool in a way, I have to admit. But anyway, all right. So <laughs> moving on, uh, Superfish, we talked about this uh, a couple weeks ago, and apparently this is not something that is, maybe I announced it then, but I just want to be clear that this is out there. Uh, Superfish is not exclusive. This was that, that terrible Lenovo uh, uh, crapware, bloatware put onto their their lower end machines, their Loga Yogas and their their uh, their Z series. It wasn't on their ThinkPads that was allowing for man in the middle attacks. It was a huge security breach. It was terrible. Tons of people have been saying we need to boycott Lenovo. No longer recommend Lenovo to anybody. Uh, I don't know. So so much industry requires and and so many developers uh, you know rely on ThinkPads. I I don't know I, that I, that that's practical. Uh, you know, to just, I mean, I, I'm on, I have a ThinkPad in my hand right now. I don't know that it's practical to, uh, you know, to somehow boycott Lenovo, but maybe the lower end they could do that. I don't know. So anyway, but come to find out that this is not in any way exclusive to Lenovo. A lot of people, different systems, of course, have been, have been involved or a lot of companies may have the same exact software uh, on there. And so now, fortunately, you know, with and, and again, this really is, is only a major concern, as I understand it, if you're running Windows, of course. OK, but um, a lot of your antivirus software, you know, whatever you happen to be using Kaspersky or ESET, ESET's the one I personally use, uh, you know, they are... Um, they're already finding this like like they're aware of the problem and, and they're they're nipping it in the bud right now and they're going to remove it uh supposedly so that's, that's something to keep in mind but it's not just lenovo that did this so going and boycotting lenovo which i appreciate you know what the power of the boycott uh you know and and i and i think it's a viable thing to do um i i don't i mean 
I don't know what company you, you, you know, that, that didn't do this, that hasn't been made clear yet. So, so keep that in mind uh, if you want to be consistent in, in what you're doing. But I mean, even just boycotting one company certainly does send the message to all the other companies. Uh, no doubt about that. So something, something to consider. I don't blame you if you want to boycott Lenovo. Uh, I still recommend now the Liberboot X200 is, I believe, technically a Lenovo product. So, or yes, it, it is technically a Lenovo product, uh, even though it's, you know, been so redone, you know, it doesn't have any, you know, a stitch of Lenovo left to it. So keep that in mind uh, because I still recommend that is the best. If you're not gaming, that is the single best laptop on the planet right now is the Liberboot X200. I, there's a link to, to go grab one for yourself. I wish I had one, uh, you know, but that is the best one to get your hands on. There's a link in the show notes in the appendix uh, to grab one if you want. So anyway, uh, moving on, some uh, some more consumer style news here. Uh, Google Play Music All Access, which is my uh, music streamer of, of choice, streaming service of choice uh, that I've used. It's sort of the last vestige of anything Google that I actually use. Uh, and well, I mean, of course, I use Google Plus and, you know, Hangouts for for Hangouts when I'm on World Crypto Network or if, you know, whatever the, the show I happen to be on require, you know, uses Hangouts, uses live Hangouts. Uh, I use it for that. But by and large, the only service, the only overall service that I use of Google's, I don't even use search, uh, is the Google Play Music All Access that now allows, it's been out for like three three or four years now. And initially you could only upload, you know, initially it didn't even have a subscription service. It didn't even have, I mean, certainly didn't have the YouTube music key. It didn't have, uh, you know, all of these streaming, you know, all these millions of songs that you could access on it. It originally only was a service that let you upload your own library up to 20,000 songs. And now finally, after four years, they let you upload up to 50,000 songs. Unbelievable. <laughs> I don't know what took them so long to do that. There's been other services already uh, that have allowed you to upload unlimited songs, uh, uh, and even Amazon at the time let you upload 250,000 songs, uh, which even that wouldn't, you know, match up to to my, you know, my personal full on personal library. As far as the things that I need to uh, uh, accentuate to, uh, uh, yeah, to, to, to add to the Google Play Music All Access, what it has already, uh, you know, 20,000 barely cuts it. So I welcome the 50,000 add on. But the real interesting thing is going to be, uh, you know, if you are interested in a streaming service. And as far as I know, other than running your own own cloud, OK, there is no there, there's no real, um, you know, like privacy minded streaming service out there. OK, uh, so so this is if you do streaming music, this is the only way to do it. Um, you know, the. The best thing coming may be that with OneDrive, you can have a Microsoft's going to have a music locker come out for OneDrive, and that will attach to uh, that will accentuate Xbox Music. So that might be the best one because I mean OneDrive's literally unlimited, and so then the potential for how much music you can have uploaded is literally unlimited. So that might be the best thing, and I may finally get away from Google Play Music All Access when that finally comes out. So, but keep that in mind. I mean, it's it's still other until that comes out. Google Play Music All Access is still the best uh, streaming music service available hands down, especially when you add in the YouTube music key, which the real beauty of the YouTube music key is, you know, where it allows you to, on your phone, uh, play, you know, music with or play videos, play YouTube videos with the screen off. Now, I don't give a rat's ass about music videos per se. Okay. Uh, you know, if, if I'm going around, obviously that's the whole thing with the YouTube, you know, music key is that 
um, you know, I, I'm already I'm going to use Google Play Music All Access to play the music. And if I'm not watching the video, then what the hell? The beauty of the YouTube music key that comes with Google Play Music All Access is the fact that you can listen to videos like talks, like TED Talks or whatever else. You can just listen to them or whatever video gets put up. And there's some beauties that are up on YouTube, right? You can just listen to those with the screen off, you know, in, in a mobile uh, fashion. So that's the real beauty with that. And obviously OneDrive wouldn't allow for that functionality. So maybe at the end of the day, if you want both of those services, you know, maybe the whole Xbox music and OneDrive solution isn't going to be the best, but just putting that out there, you know, if you, if you're, I mean, I, I love music and if you love music, I'm sure you're using one of those services. So, uh, all access is still the best one and it just got a little bit better. Uh, moving on. <laughs> Let's see the uh, the H- HTC. This is this is pretty interesting. One of the one of the one things I'm going to mention from Mobile World Congress is that HTC apparently is coming out with a headset. It's called the Vive VR. And here's the interesting thing. It's like, okay, everybody's getting on board with virtual reality. Samsung's working with Oculus Rift and all this. And we don't have a whole lot of details about the Vive, about HTC's Vive. So we're not entirely sure what exactly that's going to end up uh, looking like in the end. It should be out this year. But here's where it becomes really interesting, is that they're making it in conjunction with Valve, okay, with Steam, you know, the guys that make Steam. And so if it works with Valve or, you know, Valve's behind it, I mean, that's an instant moneymaker, in my opinion, like that. That's the best. If you were looking to work with a game, you know, trying to break into gaming of some kind with a VR headset or trying to break into anywhere in the PC world with a headset, uh, Valve is the company you want to be working with because they that that company has single handedly saved the PC industry in so many ways, Uh, certainly the high end PC industry. And so. Uh, yeah, I, I'm looking forward to this. Again, I've said before, I love virtual reality. And actually, I think Valve is a great company. They're one of the few companies out there that aren't that evil. And so I, I am, you know, I mean, they've, they've done some things that I don't agree with, but by and large, their setup, actually, their non-hierarchical business model is fantastic and kind of unique. Uh, but it's a great company to be working with. And so I am excited to see what comes out of this and looking forward to it because I can't wait for virtual reality, really exciting stuff. Uh, so let's get into, like I said, with our main story, we are going to do a, a touch of speculation. We are going to get wild. And last last week, so there, you have the disclosure, okay, that some of what I'm about to say does not rely on a whole ton of fact. Last week, I mentioned, the, or in the last episode, I mentioned that the story about the lights of Ceres. And the lights of Ceres is that is this shot from a satellite, and they're supposed to be trying to get more shots of it, uh, you know, to, to see if it's a repeat occurrence or what. Um, but the lights of Ceres were these two reflections, it looks like, or they're guessing it's reflections, but these two lights, you know, almost like a pair of eyes. Kind of kind of and this has nothing to do with that shot from the Hubble telescope where it got a picture of a you know, some kind of universal formation that, that looked like a smiley or a grinning face. (laughs) Um, No, this is different. Uh, And they're going to be getting more shots of this, but it's a mystery right now to, you know, to physicists, to people at NASA, to people all over the world. No one knows what the hell these two uh, lights, you know, coming from Ceres are or were, you know, maybe it's not something that will be a repeat occurrence. And so I mentioned that I would talk about it more. And so I already got people, 
emailing me directly after the show. Hey, you need to talk about that more. What the fuck's that? Yeah, so here I am. Okay. Uh, and so Ceres, just to give you a little, little heads up on Ceres, Ceres itself is the largest asteroid in the prime asteroid belt. This is the, ast the famous asteroid belt uh, between Mars and Jupiter. Okay. And Ceres is the largest one. It is, uh, it, it has some pretty, you have to understand Ceres is a pretty unique uh, little body. Now it's not unheard of that it has water on there because one of the, one of the possible uh, reasons for these two lights is that it is a reflection from a couple of, uh, you know, ice formations on there or, you know, water formations of some type on, on, you know, on the asteroid. But there's an initial problem with that. And that is the distance that's from, or, you know, the distance that Ceres is from the sun. Uh, when, when water would come up theoretically, and maybe this theory is wrong, but this has been accepted science for quite some time. Okay. Is that the instant water on Ceres could come in contact with any kind of solar radiation, it would sublime. Okay. It would do sublimation, which means that it wouldn't, you know, it, it would go right from ice to vapor. It would not pass go. There was no liquid process at all. Okay. So instantaneously, once ice of any kind or even water in that fact should, would hit the surface or, you know, would come in contact with solar radiation on Ceres, it should instantly become vapor and there's no reflection to be had. So I have a problem with the notion that on Ceres, that somehow that's a reflection of some kind of ice or lake or something like that. Okay, that's not to say that there isn't water there, but if the if this is a reflection, that means that there is some I would assume that there is some kind of solar radiation hitting it and that should be instantaneously gas, like instantaneously. There's no time for a reflection. As I understand things, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't I don't think so. Or maybe the idea that being that distance from the sun uh you know causes sublimation, maybe that theory is wrong. Maybe, okay? But it's strange. So Ceres is this large body. There's some people that have even theorized it's, it's not an uncommon theory that it, uh, it may be where some degree of life exists, microbial life. You know, often we talk about Mars, we talk about Europa or Titan. Uh, Ceres is in that class of one of those areas where some form of life, we're not talking about complex life, but some form of life could exist. Or maybe even some people get really fancy and say that, you know, through a degree of panspermia, that life came to earth from a pans, uh, panspermia is like this idea that, that, uh, you know, that some kind of, uh, celestial bodies of some type brought microbial life to earth. Okay. And that Ceres might've been a part of that function. Okay. That that's, that's a theory that that's a, that's a relatively valid scientific theory that gets tossed around. Doesn't mean it's true, but it gets tossed around. So, and that, that raises some questions because we have a few mysteries in our solar system. And uh, well, actually we have more than a few, <laughs> but, but there's a few. One is, is that how exactly did this prime asteroid belt uh, from Ceres come from, you know, that Ceres is a part of come from. Okay. And maybe there's some clues within that. Supposedly, you know, there was some kind of, you know, game of galactic billiards that occurred and, 
you know, smash, smash, celestial bodies, you know, planetary bodies, whatever, crashing into each other. And then they create this gigantic asteroid field. So some theories go popularized from people that are respected and people that aren't respected. You know, ones aren't respected would be more of the Zechariah Sitchin or Emmanuel Vilikovsky, guys of that nature. OK, uh, you know, that that don't get any kind of real credence in uh, in scientific circles. Okay. But the idea is, is that something swept into the solar system and that there was actually a, a 10th planet. Okay. There was a planet in between Mars and Jupiter and that some celestial body swept in a comet of another planet, who knows what, and just obliterated that planet, you know, that, that was in between. Now, some people like to call that such as the Sitchin types and other historians like to call that Tiamat which is uh, that there's a whole lot of interpretations about what Tiamat means. But one of them is that it is this original planet that harbored a a good chunk of life, which makes one wonder about that whole idea that if there is the possibility of microbial life on Ceres and that there is a degree of panspermia from Ceres, that maybe life actually originated not on Earth, but on this planet. This middle planet, this 10th planet in between, or what would be, I guess, what they actually the the original fifth planet, uh, Tiamat. And so that's something interesting to consider. But then how far and this is where we're getting to some serious speculation. How far did that life go? Was there. At one time. A solar system wide civilization or a civilization that arose you know, life, complex life that arose in another part of our solar system. If it happened on Earth, why couldn't it happen elsewhere? Could Tiamat have fit within the Goldilocks zone? Close enough. It's not too far. It's an interesting question. And part of some of those other mysteries within the solar system makes one wonder. Okay, now I want to make this real clear, real fast, is that I don't believe in aliens coming from anywhere outside of our solar system. Uh, As our understanding of science goes, nothing travels other than like redshifting and things like that. I'm aware of that sort of stuff. Okay, Uh, but nothing goes that fast to where that's really practical. You know, someone could say, well, it was generational ships. No, okay, well, you know, we're getting (laughs) I mean, you got to accept so many different things, you know, to to get to that point. Uh, So in my opinion, no, aliens do not visit the Earth. Uh, They never have. Now, I have caveated in the past on Sovereign Tech that perhaps there might have been life on Mars at one point or somewhere else in the solar system. But I don't believe that aliens came out of the solar system or whatever. But the question becomes. Is that if like notions like panspermia or notions that even Richard Dawkins has talked about that, you know, maybe some kind of alien life seeded Earth or whatever, you know, could have could humans have come from elsewhere. And so here's the here's the couple points I want to I want to I want to explore uh, with you on this. Is that you have the, the, the problem of moons. OK, and the problem of moons is this. Let's start with Mars. You have the moon of Phobos. Now, Phobos is it, Mars has two moons. It has Deimos and Phobos. OK, and both of them are kind of of odd characters and have uh, been up for some pretty serious uh, speculation. Now, some of this I've talked about on Sovereign Tech before. OK, but a couple of years ago, the ESA, that's the European Space Agency, that's Europe's version of NASA. Uh, they submitted a paper to the AGU, OK, the American Geophysical Union, saying that. 
Phobos could not, that it's artificial, that it was artificially placed in its orbit. Okay, now, part of that comes from a really old theory by a guy named uh, Samulovich Shklovsky. I hope I got his right. I think it's Shklovsky. And (laughs) those names get, get worse all the time. And he had theorized that actually by the numbers that we had, and he theorized this back in the 60s, that Phobos was hollow. And now apparently the ESA is backing a lot of that information up. They are saying that, you know, and it's gone back and forth. They say, no, it's not hollow. But now the ESA says, yes, it's at least porous, that Phobos is porous. But the question of its orbit uh, becomes an interesting issue because it, it you know, its orbit seems to to not it doesn't fit the bill like this is not something that got trapped. This is not a piece of space rubble, which is what the bulk of, of common science wants to tell you. This is not a piece of space rubble. And that's actually a, a scientific term rubble uh, <laughs> uh, that that just got trapped into Mars's you know, uh, uh, gravitic, you know, into its, its, its gravity uh, field. OK, this is not something that just got trapped into orbit. This is something that apparently, according to the ESA, got placed into orbit by something or someone. Now, again, I don't believe in aliens, but I've often toyed with the notion on this show that perhaps humans were more advanced than we give them credit for at, uh, at a, you know, at times in the past and who knows how far that goes. So I wonder if, as we've so recently been talking about so much about doing mining on asteroids and about even colonizing asteroids, putting bases on asteroids, this is all stuff NASA is planning as part of their 100 year, you know, Starship program. It all falls in with that, uh, you know, and it's it's getting a lot of, of press recently. You also have companies like DSI, Deep Space, Res- uh, you know, the Deep Space Institute, uh, that they are talking about doing serious mining on asteroids. What if... There were a there was a civilization that had that in mind a long time ago and had the ability to pull it off, much like we have now, you know, as humanity have achieved that ability by and large. And what if what we saw was either the remains or the continued use of such technology on Ceres? Because, again, I don't because of sublimation, I don't buy that it's that it's somehow you know some something to do with water okay but again i'm open to being wrong about that and i'm open to that whole theory of sublimation you know of that distance from the sun being a problem but it raises the question you know and so did this same civilization put phobos where it is is phobos hollow does it have something inside it you know it's an interesting story and it's true and you can look up the images on this maybe i'll make the image the 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 cover art for this episode where phobos 2 was sent out by Russia in the 1980s. It was two, uh, you know, two, two probes, Phobos 1 and Phobos 2. And they were sent out. Now, Phobos 1, they lost uh, telemetry with back in 88. You know, they, they just they, they think that it, its solar cells got out of whack and, uh, you know, its battery went depleted or, you know, was depleted. But Phobos 2 got to where it was supposed to be. And it gets one last photo. It gets a photo of this thing. It looks like a missile heading towards the moon of Phobos. And then, boom, suddenly Soviets lose all contact with Phobos 2. What exactly 
happened there? Was there an operation on Phobos, perhaps, perhaps like there may be an operation on Ceres, that uh, didn't like being looked upon? I wonder. And while we're, while we're speculating some more, because I think a lot of people would say, well, but what about Stallion? What about the Fermi paradox that you bring up so often? You know, what about the fact, shouldn't we be receiving with SETI and whatever else, shouldn't we be receiving some kind of radio signals from if there's like a mining operation out there or if because there's, uh, you know, that there's actually people out there? Well, first off, is that maybe, uh, you know, maybe maybe it's it's all, you know, abandoned. Maybe it's all that maybe that civilization died off uh, or maybe they're the origin of our own. Who knows? You know, a whole little Battlestar Galactica scenario there, maybe. I mean, who knows? But, you know, wouldn't we find something? Wouldn't they have maybe have left something in orbit around Earth if they came from somewhere else? If, you know, if they were the guys that were behind what 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 we're seeing, what the potential of what we're seeing on Ceres or what's going on with Phobos, you know, or whatever else. Well, there's a funny, funny you should say that. <laughs> because I don't know if you've ever looked into the Black Knight satellite, but the Black Knight satellite is this theory that there is, and supposedly there is, I think STS 80, I don't recall which exact mission it was, that saw, that may have seen a something, you know, over the poles of the earth. And since it's over the poles of the earth, uh, it, it's pretty difficult to detect using even means that we have today. And so the, the theory goes is that there's this black Knight satellite, you know, that, that is, you know, be it an actual satellite or whatever, you know, whatever kind of, whatever it takes shape of, you know, whether it's technological or something else that is, you know, above the earth. And this satellite may have been detected in, uh, I think in like 1899 or whatever, the early part of the 20th century by Tesla. And of course now, you know, Tesla, you, you start getting into Nikola Tesla. This is a guy who thought he was talking to aliens at times. And, you know, maybe that's what he thought was coming from the Black Knight satellite. But he was receiving some degree of a, of a rate or he was getting a bounce back of some kind from something. And so some people theorize that it's this Black Knight satellite. Uh, that's above there that one of the S one of the shuttle missions may have actually gotten a photograph of. Uh, and so, and then there's other people, you know, that, that take the black Knight satellite to be something there was because, you know, remember we've talked about in the past, how NASA, you know, its mission had very little to actually to do with space exploration. It had more to do with spying. And so some people say this black Knight satellite is actually part of the, the, what we know was a lie, which was part of the discovery satellite missions, which not the, not the shuttle discovery. This is far earlier where they were putting up satellites that were supposed to be doing stuff like the Hubble telescope, Hubble space telescope, or keeping an eye on weather, but they were literally by the papers we know for a fact that they were designed to spy on the soviets okay so you know th th there's plenty of lies to go around as far as nasa goes but keep in mind in no way in any of this am i saying that there are aliens from alpha centauri or from anywhere else i think that the science holds up very well that nothing travels that fast to where that's a practical thing to do okay so i do not believe the aliens have ever visited the earth unless you're talking about you know as i've said in the past maybe something from mars whatever but i'm going full speculation here we're taking so many logical leaps i don't even know what to do about it except for a good thing the segment's over because who knows what other shit i would have just i was about to say <laughs> but it's a theory and i wonder about it because god no there's no god but there are a lot of mysteries i'll be back with more sovereign tech what does freedom mean? 
Tune in to LRN.FM to find out. LRN.FM is the Liberty Radio Network, a collection of live talk radio and podcasts, all coming from a principled pro-liberty perspective. LRN.FM show hosts aren't left, right, or conspiracy kooks. You can tune in 24-7 to LRN.FM via your phone, computer, satellite, and more. Listen free anytime at LRN.FM. That's LRN.FM. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you. If you'll excuse me. Uh, you're not Natalia. Who are you? Oh, hello, Mr. Sovereign. Natalia is on another mission. I'm Elizabeth. I'm here to debrief you. I'd love for you to debrief me, but, uh, how did you get in my room? The bellboy let me in. Well, hooray for the bellboy. Tech Roulette. It is time for Tech Roulette, and I just want to say thank you so much for humoring my little theories. Uh, I want to make it very clear that Dr. Brian Sovereign does not subscribe to the ancient alien uh, or the ancient astronaut hypothesis or theory. Uh, I do not subscribe to anything in the supernatural. I like to keep things as logical and fact-based as possible at all times. So thank you again for the, for yes, humoring me in my speculations, but boy, it is fun to think about. <laughs> I love a good mystery, especially on the galactic scale. Uh, they, they don't get any better than that, do they? So anyway, let's get to some uh, something more serious. But, uh, you know, actually, speaking of, we mentioned 1899. We're going to go back to 1899. Uh, no, I, I'm not going to send the studio on a little time traveling trip like I did to 2099. Uh, but Tech Roulette is where, of course, I cover stories that get sent to, to me through the various channels available at Sovereign Tech, which is uh, brian at zomiaofflinegames.com. That is the email address for the show, as well as the Proton Mail address, which is Anna anarchy at protonmail.ch you can also get in touch with me through bitmessage uh and you know twitter google plus you take your pick there's there's plenty of ways uh, to get in touch with the show and if you have a story you want to submit to me to talk about i will talk about it and boy have we got a really interesting one here uh and that is this is uh, from nautilus and it is the future of the web is 100 years old in the debate between structure and openness, 19th century ideas are making a comeback. This is by Alex Wright. Um, I want to, you know, I want to say this is a, a bit, a little bit of a lengthy read, and then you know I'll get into commentary about it. But let let's start talking about it because I think this is fascinating uh, history to talk about as far as technology goes. The Earth may not be flat, but the web certainly is. "Quote: There is no top." to the World Wide Web, end quote, declared a 1992 foundational document from the World Wide Web Consortium, meaning that there is no central server or organizational authority to determine what does or does not get published. It is like Borgia's famous library of, of Babel, uh, theoretically infinite, stitched together with hyperlinks rather than top-down Dewey Decimal style categories. It is also famously open, built atop a set of publicly available industry standards. While these features have connected untold millions and created new forms of social organization, they also come at a cost. Material seems to vanish almost as quickly as it is created, disappearing amid broken links or into the constant flow of the social media, quote unquote, stream. It can be hard to distinguish fact from falsehood. 
Corporations have stepped into this confusion, organizing our browsing data in decidedly closed, non-transparent ways. Did it really have to turn out this way? The web has played such a powerful role in shaping our world that it can sometimes uh, seem like a fait, a, fait, a fait accompli, the inevitable result of a progress and enlightened thinking, uh, or the inevitable result of progress and enlightened thinking. A deeper look into the historical record, though, reveals a different story. The web in its current state was by no means inevitable. Not only were there uh, competing visions for how a global knowledge network might work, divided along cultural and philosophical lines, but some of those discarded hypotheses are coming back into focus as researchers start to envision the possibilities of a more structured, less volatile web. Now, Golden Stallion, cutting in here real quick. You've heard me say many times how technology seems to be cyclical. Here's your technology cycle. And I, that doesn't mean that somehow like a technology itself comes back, but that the philosophy behind the development of a technology will come back around. Like I said, Twitter was invented in the 90s. Its time wasn't ready, but then the philosophy behind Twitter came back when it was. Okay, so that's what I mean when I say technology is cyclical. And this article is going to really highlight this point because it's important to keep in mind. Reading on. By the late 19th century, the modern information age had already begun, the 19th century. The industrialization of the printing press, coupled with the introduction of cheap rag paper, had dramatically altered the economics of publishing. Much of Europe and North America was awash in data. Daily newspapers, cheap magazines, and mass-market novels all emerged during this period, along with a flurry of institutional reports, memos, and all kinds of other printed uh, ephemera. Meanwhile... New communications technologies like the telegraph and telephone were cropping up. Tram and railway, railway lines were proliferating. And increasingly internationalized postal service sped, sped the flow of data around the globe, unless you live in Mexico. Uh, but <laughs> By 1900, a global information network had already started to take shape. The industrial information explosion triggered waves of concern about how to manage all that data. Accomplished librarians like uh, Melville Dewey of the Dewey Decimal System fame, Sir Anthony Panisi of the uh, British Library, and Charles Cutter of the uh, Boston Athenaeum all began devising new systems to cope with the complexity of their burgeoning collections. In the fast-growing corporate world, company archivists started to develop complex filing systems to accommodate the sudden deluge of typewritten documents. Among those efforts, one stood out. In 1893, a young Belgian lawyer named Paul Outlet uh, wrote an essay expressing his concern over the rapid proliferation of books, pamphlets, and periodicals. The problem, he argued, should be, quote, alarming to those who are concerned about quality rather than quantity, end quote. And he worried about how anyone would ever make sense of it all. Boy, doesn't that sound familiar to the 21st century? Golden Stallion saying that. An ardent bibliophile with an entrepreneurial streak, he began working on a solution with his partner, a fellow, a fellow lawyer named Henry Lafontaine, who would later go on to join the Belgian state and win the Nobel Peace Prize. A, quote, universal bibliography, end quote, a repertoire bibliographica universelle that would catalog all the world's published information and make it freely accessible. The project won, won Otlet and LaFontaine a grand prize at the, world, at the Paris World Expo of 1900 and attracted funding from the Belgian government. It would eventually encompass more than 16 million entries, ranging from books and periodicals to newspapers, photographs, posters, and audio and video recordings, all painstakingly recorded on individual index cards. Otlet even established an international network of associations and a vast museum called the World 
palace, the Palias Mondial. I hope maybe I got that right. Or uh, Mundanium. That's a terrible name, uh, which at one point uh, occupied more than 100 rooms in a government building. Utlet's Mundanium presented an alternative version or vision to today's nominally flat and open web by relying on a high degree of bibliographical control. He envisioned a group of trained indexers managing the flow of information in and out of the system, making sure that every incoming piece of data would be popularly or properly categorized and synthesized into a coherent body of knowledge. To this end, he and LaFontaine developed a sophisticated cataloging system that they dubbed the Universal Decimal Classification. Classification. Using the Dewey Decimal System as its starting point, it started with a few top-level domains like philosophy, social sciences, and the arts. Uh, of let's see, which could then be further divided into a theoretically infinite number of subtopics. This in itself was nothing new, but Otlet introduced an important new twist: a set of so-called quote auxiliary tables, end quote, that allowed indexers to connect one topic to another by using a combination of numeric codes and familiar marks like the equal sign, plus sign, colon, and quotation marks. So, for example, the code 339.5, uh, and then parentheses 410 slash 44, and parentheses, denoted, quote, trade relations between the United Kingdom and France, End quote. While 311, you know, all this means statistics of mining and metallurgy in Sweden. So suffice to say, Stallion here telling you very, you know, complex uh, system that runs completely off of numbers. Again, sounds awfully familiar to today. Otlet hoped that this new system would allow for a grand unification of human knowledge in entirely new forms of information. But neither he nor his mundanium survived the ravages of World War II. After invading Brussels, the Nazis destroyed much of his life's work, removing more than 70 tons worth of material and repurposing the World Palace site for an exhibition of Third Reich art. Otlet died in 1944 and has remained largely forgotten ever since. So we have a real, Stalin here, we have a real modern case of, uh, of the Library of Alexandria, you know, getting burned down. But this time it's by the religion of fascism instead of the religion of Christianity. Or the religion of statism, I suppose. Fascism, you know, either way. Otlet was not alone, reading on, his, in his grand vision for a carefully cataloged global network. The English novelist H.G. Wells, a devout socialist, pacifist, and feminist, not to mention ardent promoter of free love, wrote a series of popular essays that he eventually published in 1938 under the title World Brain. With Europe standing on the brink of war, this would be World War I, he called for a new, deeply ontological approach to managing conflict. Quote, all the distresses and horrors of the present time are fundamentally intellectual, end quote, he wrote. Quote, the world has to pull its mind together, end quote. Like Otlet, he saw his undertaking as a central component of a grander utopian scheme. He envisioned a vast new, quote, and, or quote, unquote, encyclopedia as the distributed brain of a new world order in which a centralized global information agency would employ an army of technocrats or quote unquote samurai, as he called them, to curate, classify and disseminate humanity's collective knowledge store around the globe. Other important European thinkers like the German chemist and Nobel laureate Wilhelm Ostwald, who envisioned an Otlight outlet-like universal knowledge repository called The Bridge, uh, and his protege, Emmanuel Goldberg, who invented an early microfilm indexing tool, also explored the possibilities of new index-driven methods for organizing and distributing the world's information. 
All of these proposals were, first and foremost, managed systems, closely curated collections of knowledge that would have required a high degree of systematic control. And for the most part, they were situated squarely in the public sector with little role for private enterprise. They emerged in an era of industrialization when many writers saw great hope in the possibilities of scientific management to improve the human condition. And in a time of war, when many thinkers hoped that a more orderly system would serve as a bulwark against the possibility of international conflict. Stallion here, uh, those people also believed in eugenics. Just to make that clear in case anybody's kind of, uh, you know, appreciating what these guys had in mind. In other words, the dream of organizing the world's information stemmed not from an authoritarian impulse, but from a deeply utopian one. In the United States, though, a very different kind of utopia was being imagined. Across the Atlantic, an alternate version of computing was taking shape, driven by a deeply humanistic, individualistic, and American impulse. That vision found its earliest expression in an essay published by Vannevar Bush, a prolific inventor and sometimes advisor to President Roosevelt during World War II. In, as, in quote, as we may think, end quote, first published in the Atlantic in 1945, Bush proposed a purely hypothetical mission, uh, machine called the Memex, a kind of souped up microfilm reader that has since become one of the platonic objects of the networked age. The Memex would allow its users to search across a large body of documents stored on film, then create associations or links between them. Like Otlet and others uh, and the others before him, Bush recognized the urgent problem of information overload. Quote, the investigator is staggered by the findings and conclusions of thousands of other workers. Uh, he wrote conclusions which he cannot find time to grasp, much less to remember as they appear. End quote. Unlike Otlet, however, Bush saw no need for an army of indexers to keep track of the world's information. He pointed out what he called, quote, the artificially artificiality of systems of indexing, end quote. Bush argued that human minds operate, uh, quote unquote, by association, not indexing. And so he proposed a system that would not impose any particular classification system, but would instead allow the user to create associative trails that would ultimately be visible to other users. The essay proved wildly popular, especially after it was reprinted in Life magazine. The version of the essay found its way into the hands of a young Navy officer named Douglas Engelbart, then stationed in the Philippines, who found Bush's vision so inspiring that he chose to devote much of the rest of his life to realizing it. Engelbart eventually landed a position at the Stanford Research Institute, uh, where he attracted the attention of J.C.R. Licklider, professor at MIT and then new uh, and then new head of the Defense Department's Advanced Research Projects Agency. Enter DARPA, everybody. Engelbart worked in the 1960s San Francisco Bay Area, where an anti-institutionalist counterculture was then reaching its zenith. At one point, he even experimented with LSD. The culture stood in stark contrast to the orderly institutional tendencies of Otlet and Wells, where Europeans were turning to their institutions in a time of crisis. Many Americans were growing up in a value system that emphasized individualism and personal liberation. It was in this milieu that Licklider, Engelbart, and others began laying the foundations for the web we know today. With Licklider's support, Engelbart began work on a proto-hypertext tool that eventually came to be known as the online system. 
1968, he gave a demonstration of the system at the Herbst Theater in San Francisco, an event that has gone that has since gone down in computer history lore as the mother of all demos. And if Stallion here, if you've never seen the mother of all demos, check it out. In fact, that was all done by the by the groups at Stanford, uh, the Stanford Research Institute. And actually, SRI, the Stanford Research Institute, is so is held in such high esteem that that's actually where Siri gets its name from, if, if you didn't know that. But reading on, Engelbart presented a startlingly, startlingly far-sighted concept, complete with a word processor, a method for creating hyperlinks between documents, and live video conferencing, all operated by a keyboard and a rudimentary mouse. Another Engelbart invention. The 1960s novelist and uh, Mary Prankster, or novelist and Mary Prankster, Ken Kessie, uh, later dubbed the system the next thing after acid. By the early 1970s, a People's Computer Center had appeared in Menlo Park, California, providing access to rudimentary computer tools. Personal liberation, empowerment, and revolutionary rhetoric, all deeply American traits, shaped the attitudes of many early personal computer hobbyists and have persisted ever since in the cultural fabric of the modern technology industry. The utopianism of that era found a particularly colorful expression in the work of Ted Nelson, a decidedly unconventional computing entrepreneur who promoted his own alternative vision of hypertext, a word he coined in 1963. Uh, A former filmmaker turned Harvard sociology student, Nelson developed a fascination with computers in the 1960s that led him to publish, self-publish a series of visionary over-the-top manifestos like Computer Lib and Dream Machines. These presented startlingly original concepts with names like Thinker Toys, Indexing Vortexes, and Window Sandwiches that pointed the way toward a radically personalized form of network computing. In his masterwork, Literary Machines, published in 1981, Nelson, sometimes calling, uh, uh, proposed something called Xanadu, taking its name from Samuel Taylor Coleridge's opium-fueled depiction of Kublai Khan's Pleasure Dome. Xanadu was a universal data structure to which all other data structures will be mapped, enabling millions of users to create and share their original written and graphical material. Though Nelson never realized his ambitions for Xanadu, it would provide direct inspiration for Tim Berners-Lee eventual creation of the World Wide Web. Now, Ted Nelson will still kind of say that Xanadu is still in development (laughs) of of all ironies. Uh, It is arguably, a lot of people call it the original vaporware, and I think it does hold the record even more so than Duke Nukem Forever, because Duke Nukem Forever actually came out as uh, the longest running piece of, or, you know, of a vaporware of a band. It's not abandoned wear, but you know, it's been meaning to have come out for a good 30, 40 years now. So reading on like many of his kindred spirits from the 1960s, Nelson took a strong dislike to centrally managed systems quote from earliest youth. I was suspicious of categories and hierarchies and quote, he wrote, he was suspicious too of large institutions and especially the university system, which quote, imbues in everyone the attitude that the world is divided into subjects, that these subjects are well-defined and well-understood, and that there are basics that is a hierarchy of understanding, understandings, end quote. The explosive growth of the web that would come 30 years later would have the unmistakable stamp of Nelson's democratic computing ideal. And we're almost finished here because uh, I would actually disagree with that point. Uh, Reading on, today's web seems to exist in a state of perpetual discord. There is constant publishing and unpublishing, amid which we sometimes seem to be teetering on the brink of mass 
cultural amnesia. The lack of intellectual property controls has created massive and avoidable disruption for others, music, for authors, musicians, and other members of the creative trades. Although it's worth noting that Nelson Xanadu proposed solutions for intellectual property concerns. The lack of stability ident or stable identity management controls has usher ushered in the age of spam, phishing, and all manner of malware. As a result, most of us rely on for-profit companies to make the web safe, useful, and usable. Today, Google and a handful of other major internet corporations like Facebook, Twitter, uh, and Amazon fulfill much the same role that Otlet envisioned for the mundanium, channeling the world's intellectual output. Google freely excludes sites from its index uh, for reasons that is under no obligation to disclose. The secrets of the Googlebot or Delphic mysteries, known only to its inner circles of engineers. An increasing number of web users rely on keyword searching and timelines like Facebook's as their primary interfaces. Where Otlet and Wells envision publicly funded transnational organizations, we now have an oligarchy of public corporations. While the web may be flat and open in both the public imagination and the founding rhetoric of the World Wide Web Consortium, a truly flat web may have been just as much of an unreachable utopia as Otlet's universal bibliography. More than a century after Outlet began work on his mundanium, the consortium has begun to consider a new hierarchy that is remarkably Outlet-like -like, Outlet -like in spirit. In May 2001, Tim Berners-Lee, the consortium's director, published a paper in Scientific American along with two co-authors proposing a so-called web of data called the semantic web. The semantic web uses, me uses metadata, marked up descriptions of content that follow a consistent set of rules, something like a library classification scheme. By allowing for the consistent use of ontologies or standardized definitions of topics, content types, and relationships, the semantic web promises to make it easier to combine data from disparate sources. The semantic web uses a data model known as the resource description framework to encode subject, predicate, object relationships. In much the same way that Otlet's universal decimal classification used auxiliary tables to allow for the encoding of links between topics. Just as Otlet's ideas of centralized hierarchy encountered stiff opposition in his day, so too has a semantic web. Some have argued that the semantic web amounts to uh, a betrayal of the principles that made the web successful in the first place. In a widely circulated 2005 essay uh, called Ontologies Are Overrated, technology pundit Clay Shirky argued that the semantic web was doomed to failure. Quote, the more you push in the direction of scale, spread, fluidity, flexibility, the harder it becomes to handle the expense of starting a cataloging system and the hassle of maintaining it. To say nothing of the amount of force you have to get to exert over users to get them to drop their own worldview in favor of yours, end quote. Shirky's solution, crowdsourcing. Quote, the only group that can categorize everything is everybody, end quote. Web pundit David Weinberger also has also given eloquent voice to the anti-hierarchical ethos of the web, arguing that we, quote, have to get rid of the idea that there's a best way of organizing the world, end quote. Woo! Isn't that beautiful? We have to get rid of the idea that there's a best way of organizing the world. Reading on, rather than rely on institutional controls, he believes that the web's messiness is an inherent virtue. Quote, filter on the way out, not on the way in, end quote. He uh, predicting the emergence of what he calls a third order of knowledge, one not constrained by the physical limitations of paper, nor encumbered by layers of institutional gatekeepers. Shirky and Weinberger's critiques point toward important practical challenges that are not easily solved. 
The question of who might own the semantic web is a thorny problem. Protocols and standards and administrative infrastructure to be sustained as Otlet learned through bitter experience. But there may be a third way. A burgeoning, quote-unquote, linked data movement is exploring how to automate the classification process by having computers crawl the web and create machine-generated ontologies rather than relying on the manual curation of experts. The army of catalogers that Otlet and Wells envision may never materialize, but they may not need to. An army of search bots and algorithms may just do the job instead. Should the web remain free, flat, and open? Or would a more controlled and curated environment lead paradoxically to a greater intellectual freedom? These questions can only be completely understood in a historical context, as the latest installment in centuries-old debates about hierarchy and access, efficiency and freedom, institutions and the individual. While it's easy to give in to the temptations of historical exceptionalism and view today's web as the pinnacle of humanity's inexorable march towards liberation, variations on this dialogue have been swirling since before the dawn of the Industrial Revolution. At 25 years old, the web has plenty of growing up to do. So I hope you got through that with me, because there's a lot of history that needed to be covered. It needs to be shown that nothing new, there is nothing new under the sun, that this argument that we're having over centralization and decentralization of peer-to-peer versus centralized control, you take your pick of how you want to phrase it, is old. It's very old. In fact, it may even be older than what this article is describing, but it's there. But I want to touch on this really important point here because there's so many people that are wanting, especially like with these new, you know, blockchain technology developments and and things even beyond blockchain technology that are wanting to, you know, that are talking about this. Well, we got to categorize. We got to get all this stuff labeled. We got to have a contract. We got to have a title. We got to have an ID system. We got to have this. We got to have this. We got to all this stuff's got to get categorized. Otherwise, nobody's going to be able to get anything done. But then I want to reread this point from David Weinberger. Arguing, he has yeah, the anti-hierarchical ethos of the web, arguing that we have to get rid of the idea that there's a best way of organizing the world rather than rely on institutional controls. You know, he believes that the web's messiness is an inherent virtue. Its messiness is an inherent virtue. This is what he calls the third order of knowledge. You know, to where it's not constrained by there's no controls. There's no there's no gatekeepers whatsoever, not even the paper makers. This is so key to think about, but people have spent most. I mean, yeah, granted, Xanadu was an attempt to try to do this. In fact, isn't it interesting that somehow Xanadu didn't get all the funding and all the development that Tim Berners-Lee got for the Internet? How's that for a conspiracy for you? What happened there? One of them figured out a decentralized solution and a way to do it, you know, non-hierarchically. And then the other, you know, and maybe even a way to where, uh, you know, it could solve privacy and security issues. But then the other one had it to where, no, we're not going to have any privacy or security here because we, you know, whoever, you know, DARPA, you take your pick of the the company that was helping fund a lot of it. You know, we're going to make sure that we can get full access to anybody that uses this shit. It feels oftentimes like any attempt at categorizing is just an attempt at control. 
I mean, you know, just, just, you can, this link is in the show notes to SovereignTech.com. You can reread this article. It's worth rereading. And you look at how people tried to set so many of the, you know, set up the world's information. But by and large, most people wanted there to be some degree of gatekeepers. They wanted some degree of centralization. But the problem there is that when you have a central point of failure, there's a central point where the information can be controlled. And the internet, I would argue is a huge central point of failure. That's not new to Sovereign Tech listeners, but if you're just listening for the first time, there you go. And the other thing to, to keep in mind is that the internet itself, I mean, you know, how about, okay, let, let, let's take, for example, when you go to, to get a product, okay, whatever that product may be, uh, say you're going to get uh, the, the original iPod. Was the first iPod, was it revolutionary? Absolutely. I would argue the iPod is what created the entire mobile revolution. There's the reason smartphones are doing what they do today. And that is not because of Palm or any of those other or BlackBerry or any of those companies. I guarantee you it is directly responsible, you know, to the iPod. The iPod did it all. But is the first one, how does the first one compare to the sixth generation? Well, they're night and day. The, you know, the sixth generation one blows the first generation away. And I would argue to you that the Internet is a first generation product and that while it is revolutionary, it may not be very good at what it does. And so we need to get to the second and third generation products. And I would apply that to Bitcoin as well. The first generation product may not be as good as what can come after the fact. You know, you consider things like NXT or you consider, you know, other cryptocurrencies or other, you know, crypto equities, crypto platforms, whatever you want to, you know, whatever you want to talk about. We got to keep this in mind that these arguments are, are old. They've been gone over before. There's things that work, things that don't work. And if we look at history, we can figure out what doesn't. Why? Why did, you know, the mundanium that that uh, that what Otlet tried to set up? This, this central point of human knowledge, this great categorization of human knowledge. What happened to it? It got burned down by the Nazis. Why did that happen? Because it was a centralized point of failure. Because there was one place it could go to. We're lucky that we have some ancient manuscripts from history because the Christians, keep in mind, the Christians didn't just burn the Library of Alexandria. They burned the Library of Pergamum, too. They burned at least eight or nine libraries that we're aware, aware of, major libraries. But fortunately, some libraries were so disparate, so far away, so built so far away that they didn't get that far. That reach didn't get that far. They were decentralized systems. Now, we lost a whole hell of a lot, but there's a lot that was fortunately saved because not everything was in one place. So I want you to consider that. Consider the history, consider where we could go, and consider the possibility that we are dealing with a first-generation product and that it is high time to be, you know, going to the second, third, or fourth generation product. We'll talk more about, you know, doing things exponentially uh, in the next segment. So consider this. This is Sovereign Tech, and I'll be back with more. Time now for 90 Seconds on Sex with Dr. Paul. When it comes to how often men masturbate, it doesn't vary that much. You can safely predict that most young men who aren't having sex with a partner will masturbate from a couple of times a week to a couple of times a day. Well, There's no such certainty when it comes to how often women masturbate. There's also little correlation between how often a woman masturbates and how much she likes sex. One woman who loves having sex with a partner might only masturbate once or twice a month, if ever. 
For another, it might be once or twice a week, and a third woman might masturbate once or twice a day. Some women will go through stages where they'll go for weeks or months without masturbating, and then there will be times when they'll masturbate more frequently. And it's possible that for some women, the hormone changes related to their menstrual cycle might make them more likely to masturbate during certain times of the month. Also, some women masturbate more when they're in a relationship rather than less because they're more turned on in general. So I wouldn't assume that if your female partner's masturbating, it's because she's not being satisfied. Maybe she isn't, but maybe she is and then some. As for why women masturbate, it's for pretty much the same reasons as men. Because they're feeling horny or physically aroused or as a way of relaxing, especially at night when they're trying to fall asleep. For more, visit 90secondsonsex.com. I just received an encrypted message from Decentral with your next mission, and it looks like I'm coming along. Why, Elizabeth, I wouldn't have it any other way. You're clearly good at staying on top of things. It helps when one's partner is very skilled. No, no, we can have more fun later. What does the message say? Important Messages. It is time for Important Messages, where I cover the emails that get sent into me through the various, or messages that get sent into me through the various channels available. Of course, Brian at ZomiOfflineGames.com is the email address, anarchy at protonmail.ch. Uh, also, there is BitMessage, which all that can be found in the show notes. If In case you don't know how to, you know, at some point spell any of that, uh, it's all in the show notes at SovereignTech.com. Uh, you know, all the ways to get in touch with me are there, including Twitter, Google+, you take your pick. So we've got a few, uh, you know, this is, you can ask me any question you want. It doesn't even have to be, you know, technology, uh, uh, a technology question. It can be anything. So please do feel free uh, to ask me anything you want. And I will keep you anonymous unless you specifically say that you want me to say your name. Otherwise, you know, it'll be down to pronouns and that's it. Okay. So uh, first, uh, first question I've got here, since uh, we kind of, we shortened up uh, the, the segment a little bit and uh, it got, it got a few I want to get through here. Um, I was recently, you know, I've recently, I've been talking a lot about Usenet, uh, about how maybe we need, you know, considering what happened with title two getting passed, uh, considering with just everything that goes on on the internet, uh, you know, the, these days, as far as companies really kind of reining in on it, uh, you know, Google with Google kind of creating, you know, speaking of a gateway that the internet has, the web browser is a serious, serious gateway to what you can do on the internet. Uh, one really, you know, a clear cut case is how many things, you know, and, and of course this comes at the, uh, you know, this is at the decision of a, of a company, of course, but how many things do certain websites you access? How many more things can you do on Chrome than you can do on Firefox? There's a lot more things you can do on Chrome. Something as simple as when I go to OneDrive on Chrome on OneDrive, I can choose to upload a folder or a file. When I go to it on Firefox, I can only choose to upload files. I, I lose options. And so Chrome, you know, what Chrome enables and allows, and granted, yes, I understand the company has to work with them on that, but what they allow for, you know, it, they're, they're a gatekeeper in a way. In fact, even, you know, if Google says we don't accept this certificate, you know, the, this, this certificate authority or whatever, or we're not going to accept SSL one or SSL two or whatever anymore, we're just going to do SSL three. They'll block the, you from getting to the website. So the web browser is a serious, serious piece of gatekeeping technology uh, on the Internet. And I think that there's ways to where those kind of gatekeepers can't even be devised, uh, you know, if one builds a proper network. 
Okay, so anyway, so that that's the case. So I've been talking about using Usenet a lot, getting people reintroduced to Usenet. Now, around the world, it's still very popular. In the United States, though, uh, you know, if something is older than 24 hours, nobody touches it anymore. So, uh, you know, and Usenet's been around since the 80s. It's one of the earliest networking implementations we have. So somebody asked me, and and I'm going to, I will do more of a compilation about how to use Usenet and, and what to go through. I will be doing that in the future. But someone uh, emailed a bit of a critique and pretty much saying, you know, Usenet isn't a permanent record. Like, you, you do lose access. Uh, there is only so much retention that you get from Usenet, because now you have to pay for Usenet access as to where before it used to be bundled with your ISP. Um, you know, there's only so much retention that you get where, you know, some Usenet's uh, providers, you know, there's Easy News, Giga News, all that. They'll let you read back to two years. But if it's a Usenet message or whatever past that time frame, you can't access it. And they said, you know, isn't that a real problem? Well, I'd venture that that's not so much of a problem. And the reason I'd say that is, is that with the Internet, I mean, how many sites, you know, there's a reason that the Internet Archive at archive.org, which I love, there's a reason the Internet Archive exists is because Web pages go away. You know, links fail. Links change. I mean, imagine what would happen if, you know, what would happen if Bitly went away. Right. And, you know, that's the, the URL shortener or one of these URL shortener lists that you've been using uh, went away. Then suddenly all those links in your Twitter feed would mean nothing. Or say you lose an account, you get an account taken from you, uh, you know, everything you ever linked to and all that stuff that's stored up on the Internet. I mean, it's gone. It's over. It's done. So I would argue that the Internet, while it may be slightly better about the fact that, you know, it will retain data so much, it is in no way, uh, you know, it, it's as lit. It's. Usenet is as much a permanent record in many ways as the Internet is, is my point. So I don't I don't think that that's a valid critique of Usenet because, you know, the Internet's I mean, like I said, there's a reason Internet Archive exists, because all that information can't stay stored there either. If more people used Usenet, maybe the, the, the retention could equal what the Internet uh, provides. You know, and then one could argue, of course, you know, is what the Internet's storing important anyway, right? You want to talk about some history. Uh, if you remember what uh, uh, Thoreau said, Henry David Thoreau, what he said about when, when the telegram or the telegraph came around was, you know, he said, it was like, oh, well, now, you know, Maine can talk to Texas. But what if Maine and Texas have nothing important to say to each other? <laughs> so anyway, uh, you know, again, I, I get your point, but I don't I think the Internet is just as it, it, potentially is just as volatile uh, as Usenet uh, could possibly be. So the other thing is I already got emails and I'm recording this shortly after I did the last episode. I'm pre-recording this, but, you know, I usually record on Saturday mornings before I release it. Uh, this is being recorded way ahead of time. But I already got an email, somebody saying, hey, 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 it's like, what's your problem with the Electronic Frontier Foundation? Because in the last episode, I said, I'm done supporting those guys. You know, I'm done with my membership. You know, screw them. Fuck them. I'm, I'm tired of it. Well, my problem with the EFF is is pretty simple. Uh, they are celebrating Title II, which deserves zero celebration, no celebration whatsoever, um, th- th- for for a million reasons, you know. And and actually, and not that, but I'm not saying. Also, keep this in mind. I'm not saying that it's if Title II didn't pass, that it would be worth celebration. That's my whole point. I've been bringing up this whole episode is that look, you know, the internet's pretty screwed. Either way, you know, I mean, because I'm here, you know, even anarcho-capitalists and libertarians and all that. Oh, I can't believe Title II passed. They just stifled innovation. Verizon doesn't want to innovate. These guys get to sit pretty. They're not interested in innovating at all. 
There's no innovation that got stifled that's full of shit. You know, in fact, ironically, of all ironies, we talked about P-Cell in the last episode. Okay, how P-Cell is going to possibly get rolled out once it gets past the FCC. It's going to get rolled out in San Francisco. Guess who's supporting P-Cell? AT&T. Why do you think AT&T just suddenly jumped on board with a, with a technology that's been, you know, more or less ready to go for two years? Because this Title II thing is forcing them to innovate. So guess where the innovation happened, folks? It happened when Title II got passed. How about that, libertarians? The whole thing's a mess. It is an absolute mess. It is the muddiest waters I've ever, ever seen as far as legislation and, and, and technology goes. There's no good guys here. There's no way that this could have worked out for anybody's benefit. The only solution, now the political solution would have been, as I've said many times, at the local government level. But the only real solution is for a whole new networking system. That's the only solution that exists. This, the whole scheme sucks ass. Okay, and the EFF is happy about this, and the EFF is getting more political, and now they're acting like there's some kind of political force. Fuck your politics. Your politics don't mean anything. Technology and people have to evolve to get freedom. Politics has nothing to do with that. Slavery did not go out of fashion because of politics. It's because of an evolution in human thinking. It was a byproduct of, uh, you know, various strands of the Enlightenment. It had to do with education, not with politics. And so if the EFF is going to just become some kind of political lobbying force that's, that's, that's just going to get so excited about a bullshit win, screw them. I'm not interested in supporting you anymore, and I will not run your ads uh, you know, I cannot believe, and I've heard libertarians saying, uh, I am siding with the EFF with, with this whole title two thing. What? And they say, well, they know, they know better. No, th- clearly they don't know better. They don't know what actually solves the stuff. How about all that money they spent on, on fundraising for, for title two and reaching out to people with title two. And then they even use my Twitter account to do it, you know, and all this stuff. How about you spend that on, you know, where you could have been funding P cell instead of fucking AT&T. How about that? There's a solution for you. <sighs> All right. <laughs> you know, I think I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to leave the segment of that. I was going to get into uh, some people had questions about, Brian, what do you mean you don't uh, agree with, with unity? You know, well, I, I'll talk about that more in the future. One thing I'm just going to lay out to you quick is because the person questioned whether or not like, no, look, you know, you need a lot of people behind this stuff, you know, you, all of this. And it's like, no, you're, you really don't. You don't need a whole lot of people. You may need, you may need money like we just talked about, but you don't need a whole lot of people. And case in point, you know how many people developed Instagram and still work on Instagram, even after Facebook bought them for a billion dollars? 13. It's the largest social, it's the most popular and the largest social media network, arguably, in the world. It's one of the few that even works in China, okay? And Facebook itself doesn't even work in China. Uh, you know, stock, it doesn't work, okay? And it's only, it was developed by 13 people. It was, I mean, it had a valuation that went up thousands and thousands of percent, and it was all done by 13 people. 
No, you don't have to have these large ass companies to make drastic changes in uh, in the user experience or in what people even want to do with network technologies. It can be done by very very few people now. This is uh, this is that exponential uh, you know you know growth that occurs. These uh, something that actually it's called uh, at the Singularity University they call it exponential organizations things of that nature. There's a great book uh, by Peter Diamandis called Bold. Yeah, you could check it out. It talks a lot about this. And it's a lot of stuff, you know, I'd been thinking about as well. You know, spontaneous or uh, <laughs> simultaneous, spontaneous ideas happening where it's not necessary to really make huge changes in the way people interact with each other. It only takes a few people. In fact, it may be best if it's only a few people and you don't become a gigantic company like Google or even Microsoft. In fact, I half wonder if Microsoft's doing major layoffs because they know that small, that really, really small teams might do it better. Just a thought. Not to say I'm happy that they laid off a bunch of people, but anyway, uh, I'll talk about the Unity thing in, in a future episode. I'll be back with more. Babylon 5 ended a great war and united a hundred alien races in peace. Danger didn't die. It just went underground with new heroes and new evils to carry the torch. We need to make sure they all understand we will not be intimidated. What is wrong with you people? We have to set him against himself. It's an entire new season of Babylon 5 with all new episodes. Babylon 5 is available for download on your favorite torrent site. See it now to experience the greatest show in television history. Babylon 5. Do you still have it? Got it right here. How does this affect System D? I don't know. The message just said it was important. I think we need to find out more about this. Tool of the Week. Woohoo, look at that. We got a Tool of the Week. <laughs> this is like the expendable segment you know it's sometimes when i when i want to talk about something deeper uh, i get rid of it but I, I don't always want to do that now tool of the week of course uh is where i can talk about you know a product a website uh, a piece of software you, you know whatever i decide you know fits in and that's why i kind of combined i used to do software of the week and i used to do website of the week and i just combine them together but uh, i also want to talk about things uh you know maybe even like analog things not even digital things that can really help you out uh that may have something you know that can assist you with your security uh you know and and privacy you know uh, both ways so something that i get probably the most amount of of feedback uh, and critique upon is, um, the fact that I am not, I, I don't believe in the use of lethal force. Uh, people, you know, really seem to take a huge issue with that sort of thing. And so then I get labeled a pacifist, which I'm not, uh, I mean, I guess maybe under some loose definitions, maybe I'd fall under that. I, I guess I wouldn't argue with somebody if they wanted to call me that, but, uh, you know, I do believe in self-defense and so something that, and it's, this is actually going to dovetail into the next segment because the last time I did tool of the week, I talked about how you can become the press, how you can become a journalist, you know, uh, a grassroots journalist on the fly and be, you know, have all the things that are required uh, to be recognized as such. And we're going to talk about that more during HackSec, okay, um, in, in, as it relates to the Barrett Brown case. So, you know, one thing that, that we can add on to that, and we talked about with, you know, how to be like with the press, you know, you have the, the professional press pass uh, that you can get made up. You, you can look back to previous episodes to find out about that. Uh, you need to have a pen and paper. 
Okay, those are the only three criteria to be recognized pretty much worldwide as as press. And, you know, the, the debate over why one would want to do that, that's a different story. But let's say you did want to do that. One of the things I think that you could add to that, okay, and I want to add it here, is a is your pen. Let's talk about the pen. Um, and one of the popular things uh, that, that are available now is what's known as a tactical pen. Now, it's an unfortunate name. I wish it was just called maybe a defensive pen, uh, but whatever. And a tactical pen is a pen that is generally made out of uh, aircraft-grade aluminum. And it is so it's you know practically indestructible, especially at the size that, that a pen is. And generally, they're not that much larger than your average pen. Sometimes they are. It doesn't matter. Um, and it will have, you know, the ability to where, you know, it, you could uh, maybe on one end, it'll have like a point where it can be a glass breaker. Or, you know, it can it can pierce things. And it's a very simple, relatively nondescript thing you can carry with you. I carry one all the time. Uh, and they come in a bunch of different models. Some of them have, uh, have you know, more, uh, <laughs> perhaps a more uh, edgier, uh, like, cap on it that may allow for, you know, greater damage or something. Not that I'm really interested in that. Uh, but a tactical pen's an interesting thing, you know, and if you were in a very unfortunate situation, it would certainly far better than uh, having your fist. And also, of course, if you're, you know, obviously the glass breaker end of it is, is has a lot of uses that, that I'm sure one could, could imagine. Some of them, there's even some companies that will sell these where they get really fancy and in the cap of the pen, they will put a, uh, a key for a handcuff key. To, to get out of handcuffs. And I think these are, these are interesting. It's just something very simple uh, that, that you can carry with you. Now, admittedly, I took one with me to uh, when the lovely and hyper-intelligent uh, Dr. Stephanie Murphy and I went to the Alice Cooper and Motley Crue show. I did have one of these with me, but the one, it was kind of larger. And they, the security, you know, at the, at the event would not let me bring it in. They said, you know, you're going to have to take it back to your car or whatever. And I just said, you know, it's just a fucking pen. And I, and I tossed it. And that's really all it is. These aren't pens that have knives in them or blades in them. I don't think that those are good ideas. Uh, but this is something, but otherwise that's the only time I've ever had one of these be an issue. I've gone through the TSA with them many times, uh, you know, pretty much any situation you can imagine, uh, borders, you know, I've had, I've had a tactical pen with me, uh, and it's really not, uh, not an issue. So, it's something that I think to really consider, you know, having as far as, it, you know, non-lethal, simple, nondescript. And it's good to have things that are a surprise that people don't expect. Uh, you know, I, I think that's there, there's something to that that I need to talk about in the future. The other thing uh, that I want to mention is tactical flashlights. Now, studies clearly show that it is one of the most, uh, you know, ready, ready to go, uh, most efficient and uh, effective Defensive things to have is just a flashlight. Some of these tactical pens will also have a flashlight on them as well. That's something to consider. Or you can get a flashlight that is completely separate for it. And the idea is, is that if, you know, again, you are in an unfortunate situation somewhere, you can blind the person with the flashlight. And again, you know, the research stands how effective that is, you know, something so simple. The, the, this this goes true for, you know, light on a situation always works. I mean, even uh, from a security standpoint, cameras aren't as effective as streetlights in deterring crime. So I want you, you know, people always ask me, what's the alternative? What's the alternative? Well, here's some alternatives for you uh, that will actually, like I say, dovetail nicely into what we're talking about for Hackstack. So I'll be right back with more. This is Sovereign Tech.
Hey, this is Michael Dean from the Freedom Fiends Radio Show. I've been working with computer programmer Derek Slopey to create Fiend Phone. I'm using Fiend Phone right now to talk with and record one of my co-hosts in real time. Take it, Davi. Hey, this is Davi Barker, and I'm a thousand miles away from Michael, but we sound like we're in the same room. We sure do, Davi. So, Davi, please tell the nice people more about Fiend Phone. FiendPhone is free, open-source software that opens up a global world of possibilities for collaborative, high-quality remote voice media production, and I'm digging it. People can try the Windows beta version of FiendPhone right now at FiendPhone.com. But we're also raising money to vastly improve FiendPhone and vastly improve independent talk media worldwide. So go to FiendPhone.com to help out. Who will build the audio roads? We will, with your help. That's FiendPhone.com. F-E-E-N-P-H-O-N-E dot com. Foxtrot, Echo, Echo, November, Phone dot com. Fiend Phone. I never knew remote audio could be this good. We're never going to make it out alive if those blockchain drones get off the ground. I can handle that. You just find us another ride. Get on! Nice moves. When did you learn that? On with you. No guns, no killing. Are the drones taken care of? They are now. Nothing works better than a quick hack. Let's get going. It is time for HackSec, where I cover issues of hackers and security. And this is something I've talked about for a while that I wanted to do, and I wanted to tell you about Barrett Brown. And I actually got a great email from a listener of Sovereign Tech that I will cover uh, as part of this segment. So, But I want to give you a brief introduction into who Barrett Brown was and what is going on with that, because he was recently sentenced. This was just in January of 2015 of this year. Uh, where he was sentenced to, let's read it, uh, U.S. District Judge Sam A. Lindsay sentenced Barrett Brown this morning, this would be January 22nd, 2015, to 63 months in federal prison, minus the 31 months he has already served to date. He was also ordered to pay $890,000 in restitution. The EFF is disappointed to see that Brown wasn't released today after having spent nearly three years in prison on charges stemming from his work as an independent journalist. Brown's work has appeared in major outlets like Vanity Fair, The Huffington Post and The Guardian. He also founded uh, Project PM, a project to crowdsource review of documents for investigative journalism. Brown's legal trouble began in 2011 when hackers obtained a voluminous set of emails from government contractor H.B. Gary and placed them on the Internet. He turned to crowdsourcing to review records and emails taken from another government contractor, Stratfor, after hackers broke into their server late in 2011. Those records included millions of emails, including opportunities for rendition and assassination and detailing attempts to subvert journalists, political groups, and even foreign leaders. They also include tens of thousands of credit card numbers and their verification codes. In September 2012, as the government intensified, the U.S. government, intensified its investigation of the Stratfor hack and Brown specifically, he posted a series of YouTube videos and tweets allegedly threatening an FBI agent. Brown was immediately arrested and charged with a variety of criminal charges related to the threats. Two months later, he was indicted in a separate case with 12 charges. In the new case, the government alleged 
uh, trafficking in stolen authentication features, and uh, that being the, the, the CVV code on the credit cards, and aggravated identity theft for sharing a link to the Stratford, Stratford records that contained credit card information. So let's be real clear on this, because I think a lot of people, you know, where all the attention is on other other cases um, of, you know, that has to do with the, the dark web and hackers and all that stuff. You know, namely, one might think of, um, you know, the Silk Road, right? Everybody's like, oh, this case is terrible. This is the biggest thing, you know, the, the biggest terrible thing to happen to the Internet. This is the this is so bad. This is this is going to change the world. No, no, no. Let's be clear that Barrett Brown is spending years in jail because he shared a link. You talk about because of running a website. Fuck that. This guy's not even running. Or I mean, maybe he ran a website, but this isn't even about him running a website. This is about him sharing a link on Twitter. This is the biggest case right now that already, you know, that, that sadly came and gone. This is the biggest case in the past 10 years. And I'm not hearing enough of it getting talked about in liberty oriented circles. There's other anarchist circles that, that liberty or that libertarians or ANCAPs or whoever uh, say are invalid that do talk about it. Uh, but no one, no one else, no one is in, in a lot of these circles. So I want to make sure that this is out there and that this is clear of what's happening. Okay, he was investigating a case. Hackers trust, you know, a lot of hacker groups, heroic hacker groups trusted this guy. You can debate about the credit card numbers being sent out. Was that okay? Whatever, whatever. The point is, is that he shared a link. He's going to jail for years. That's it. End of story. It's scary. So I want to go to uh, the, the, the email from the listener of Sovereign Tech here. Hi, Brian. You mentioned a few things in the last couple of shows, which concurrent with another recent event seem very relevant. The points you raised were one incremental steps do not work to bring about Liberty. Uh, and I, yes, I say that all the time. <laughs> in fact, actually that book bold, I mentioned, if you read that, that just obliterates the case of incrementalism, that it doesn't work on any level that you're talking about in any part of life. It's a great read. Number two, Important trial with an unfortunate verdict. And of course, that's a reference to Ross and Silk, uh, Silk Road, which is, look, that is a terrible thing that's going down. Please don't misunderstand me. I just want to make sure that, uh, that, that this is all understood, that there's a lot of crazy things going on, not just one. Uh, number three, having a pad, and paper, pad of paper and pen and a press pass, which was the tool of the week uh, a couple weeks ago. What I wanted to bring to your attention is the sentencing of Barrett Brown, which we just covered. Uh, anyway, and he actually he shared another link with me with what Barrett Brown said to the judge. That link has been taken down as of now. Uh, you know, I don't know if somebody went to jail for that one. Terrible joke. Uh, but but you can't access it. So sadly, I can't read that off. But I want to read on here. Anyway, this is a reporter who got sentenced to a prison term for doing what journalists do, reporting on important information for the benefit of the rest of us. He happened to link to publicly available material, which is perfectly fine. That is, unless it's embarrassing to the regime. Good point. In which case he gets locked up in a cage. The case of Ross and of Barrett have similarities between them. And unfortunately, both got crushed down by a rigged system we've come to know and love, known as blind justice. 
The linkage I wanted to point out to you is that the reason Barrett has been sent to prison was because he was not considered a member of the press and therefore was not granted the protection that press members receive vis-a-vis freedom to report on all matters, refusal to testify, not revealing sources, etc., known as shield laws. Now, I thought the First Amendment allowed us free speech, and I also thought that there's nothing wrong with keeping secrets. But the fact of the matter is that though through incrementalism, which achieves nothing for liberty, but is the single most destructive force in the hands of those opposing liberty uh, through incrementalism. Our basic rights have been deteriorating significantly in recent years. Another incremental step is being taken, and that is the aim of passing federal shield laws, which will potentially overwrite the state's shield laws. And the caveats put into this law will be the proverbial devil uh, in the details. Those caveats are the designation of who is and who isn't considered press. If this passes and given the precedent with set with Barrett Brown, then the government will decide not only those uh, will decide not only those well-behaved kids from mainstream media outlets will be allowed free speech and to say what they want, as long as they continue saying what the government is willing to put up with. Those outside of the mainstream will not be afforded any such rights and thus effectively our benevolent overlords will drive another nail in the coffin of our so-called God-given rights enumerated in that great document we all love, the Constitution. What bullshit! Your tool of the week in light of the recent court cases could not be more relevant or necessary. All people, as you say, are journalists, and I think people should be aware of what is going on. Those with a more activist bent would do well in knowing about how to present themselves as, quote unquote, legitimate members of the press before this rug is completely pulled from under them. I applaud you for this choice of tool of the week and just wanted to send you this message to give you the context in which I took your comments. Uh, I'll leave you with Barrett Brown's Barrett Brown's comment as he left the court courtroom. What a fucking hero. And so fortunately, some of the, these comments that, that were left with, uh, he included in the email. So let's get into that. Uh, good news. The U.S. government decided today, this is Barrett Brown speaking, decided today that because I did such a good job investigating the cyber industrial complex, they're now going to send me to investigate the prison industrial complex. For the next 35 months, I'll be provided with free food, clothes, and housing as I seek to expose wrongdoing by Bureau of Prisons officials and staff and otherwise report on news and culture in the world's greatest prison system. I want to thank the Department of Justice for having put so much time and energy into advocating on my behalf. Rather than holding a grudge against me for the two years of work I put into bringing attention to a DOJ-linked campaign to harass and discredit journalists like Glenn Greenwald, the agency instead labored tirelessly to ensure that I receive this very prestigious assignment. Wish me luck. <laughs> well, I appreciate, uh, I, I, I do appreciate, uh, these comments that that's hilarious. And boy, I can only imagine the stories that are going to come out of his time in jail is on as terrible and atrocious as it is that he's even going to prison. So, uh, yeah, this, this is, this raises an interesting point. Now, please do be, you know, make no mistake. Use all due caution in, you know, in these situations where you want to be an activist journalist of some kind. Okay. Do not, you know, these shield laws that were mentioned uh, by the email are great email, by the way. Uh, these, these shield laws are, they defer by state as I understand it. So I want to make sure you look into what they are in your state. If you do decide to rely upon them. Okay. Um, but this is something, this is a degree of easy activism. Like I said, you know, the cases where I would like to see it being done is, uh, you know, like it, it'd be interesting to see 
what technologies are getting put out at various conventions. Uh, you know, like I would have loved to have gotten a report from Urban Shield, you know, from an activist with an activist mindset saying what's going on there. That was a, a police conference that was funded by, of all things, that wonderful capitalist you know, the, the capitalist dream of a company, Uber, supporting the police. Woo-hoo! Uh, you, you know, I would love to have heard from, an, uh, you know, an anarchist there. Uh, all, there's all kinds of areas where I think it would be very interesting. And it's more or less a non-threatening situation for you to be there and to present yourself as the press and to find out what's going on. And, of course, I'd happily give Sovereign Tech as a venue for people to report on what they see there. So, you know, things of that nature, I think that would be interesting, you know, if one wanted to do that. Now, of course, the real thing to do in any situation is to always work on yourself. That is the real key to freedom, right? Okay. There's no question about that, but this is something that, you know, there's, there's purpose in this, you know, I mean, it's the reason I'm a journalist that I bring forward the stories that I bring to you uh, with sovereign tech, because our opinions are not being heard. You know, I mean, is it going to do anything? Well, there's the chance that maybe it means nothing. I am totally open to that, that possibility that it doesn't mean anything. Um, But this is, I would, dare say that education, which we talked about earlier, how it was education that ended slavery, not politics, educating people, which is largely what journalism, real journalism is all about, uh, is a good thing. This is not getting involved in the system. I don't recommend getting involved in the system. And I don't, frankly, I don't even really care by and large what a lot of politicians say, but I am interested in a lot of what these, you know, fuck nuts in these corporations like Samsung and whoever saying that, you know, their plans for the future, I'm really interested in what they've got to say. Uh, I want to hear about that because that's stuff that that will likely get implemented. So, uh, yeah, I'm glad that that inspired you, emailer, you know, what we were talking about. And the Barrett Brown case is absolutely terrible. Uh, It is something that, you know, needs to be looked at. So many of these cases where people either involved with the hacker community or hackers themselves who are absolutely heroic, uh, you know, are are getting just it's, it's terrible. It's absolutely terrible. They need our more. They need our support because otherwise, you know what? Look what happened with Aaron Schwartz. Behind the wall of history, there is a story that has never been told. A story of a world that ended, only to usher in the beginning of our own. This is a time that ancient tomes could only describe in metaphor. Prepare for the very first video game from Zomia Offline Games, Hypercronius. Hypercronius will allow you to experience a time beyond your imagination in a fully interactive 16-bit, two-dimensional role-playing experience. Hypercronius. Know the past, and you can know the future. From Zomia Offline Games. Ah, we made it. They're not kidding when they say you're the best, Mr. Sovereign. Oh, Elizabeth, you haven't seen anything yet. Oh, really? Really? Why don't I show you? Right here? Out in the woods? On the bike? Elizabeth, I can rise to any... Any... Occasion. Oh, Brian. The Climax. It is time for the climax where I talk about 
whatever the hell I want to talk about. Uh, I mean, it could be anything. It could be a movie. It could be a topic. It could be a person. It could be uh, a book, comic book, uh, an album. I mean, you, you really, you, you take your pick. I, <laughs> I take my pick. That's the point. So this week, um, I've got something that I saw that really, boy, did, boy, did it get me excited. <laughs> I, I loved it. Um, and fortunately, I was able to download it uh, right away, thanks to not using Chrome, but using Firefox. Yes, I know you can use keepfit.com uh, to download YouTube videos in Chrome, but it's a lot easier when you have a nice extension that just lets you click on something and download it. So anyway, uh, what this was is a movie that came out, and it was directed by, uh, by Joseph Kahn. And it was something, well, you know, see, I like to geek out a lot of times. Uh, I don't do it. I haven't done it as much as I'd like to recently, but I like to geek out often on Sovereign Tech and it's particularly for the Climax or what used to be known as Pick of the Week. And uh, some, some time ago, maybe on the year and a half, two years ago, I actually did a two-parter. It was the very first time I did uh, a two-parter where the, cli- the, the Pick of the Week on one week had a part two the next week because I just couldn't get it all in inside of two hours. And so what it was about was the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. And I'm a huge fan of Power Rangers. I I love it. In fact, I mean, I I say it as often as I can. I've said on the World Crypto Network, I said in all kinds of things, um, you know, that, uh, you know, I talk about, I'll mention the Green Ranger as often as I can. I like to get it out there. I love Power Rangers, always have. Uh, When I was, you know, I was pretty much becoming a teenager when it came out. So I was just at that breaking point of where it's, uh, where it would be considered cool to, uh, to like it back then you know, without it being kind of weird <laughs> in some people's eyes. But I mean, I don't care if somebody's 50 and they watch Power Rangers. Good for you. It's awesome. Um, and, and so I've always been a big fan. And one of the things I talked about years ago on Sovereign Tech uh, when I when I did talk about Power Rangers is the thing that I always. Well, first, I'll say the reason that I love Power Rangers and the reason why I love a lot of things uh, like the Wing Commander movie that a lot of people don't like. And maybe even the recent we talked about Jupiter Ascending recently. Uh, and I mentioned this kind of in that episode, if you haven't heard that, where the lovely and hyper-intelligent actor Stephanie Murphy and I talked about uh, Jupiter Ascending, which we went and saw. Um, I like to play with and to imagine, I know so many people don't want to leave a whole lot to the imagination anymore, but I like to imagine, you know, the things that aren't said, the things that aren't shown on film, you know, or on TV in the case of Power Rangers, you know, like what? Okay. So there's this really cool thing over here or this kind of happened, but they never explained what exactly goes down after the fact and all of this. And so one of the things I said with Power Rangers is like, I mean, these guys are, you know, they're teenagers, you know, they, they, they've, they've got to be, you know, things have got to be getting sexy at some point. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean, uh, I mean, when I was a teenager, I couldn't wait for things to get sexy. And so point being now, obviously I was wanting them to be more grown up, you know, in what I was envisioning, but I would like to, there have been a really dark, gritty Power Rangers, like a really, you know, like a serious treatment um, of Power Rangers where they're older, you know, and, and, they're, and they're doing, you know, doing their thing, whatever. And my, my proverbial prayer got answered. Okay. <laughs> uh, because a guy actually, uh, what's, what's the director's name? Uh, Joseph Kahn. And he was working with some others. Uh, they made a, it was, I think it's about maybe 13 minutes or so. I think it was. And you can fortunately still find the, uh, the uncut, you know, the extreme version on YouTube. Uh, they made a, a, a Power Rangers and it was a sequel. It wasn't a reboot. It wasn't not the word reboots kind of funny because 
I take reboot to be to equate with remake, but I guess sometimes people use the word reboot to mean that like they restarted, you know, they picked up from where it was left off. Um, and so, you know, when I hear reboot, I think remake. But anyway, this isn't a remake. This is a sequel. This is a continuation. And uh, and it's a damned good one. They, they did a great job. And believe me, when I say this is extreme, when I say that they went dark and gritty and sexy, they did it. So, I mean, like there's there's a point where Zach, uh, the black ranger, who is not shockingly black, um, he he's in bed with two women. I mean, he's having a threesome straight up and they're getting it on. And he's like this really wealthy guy. And he uh, like he, he made there was this thing, hip hop keto that he was teaching back in the first season of the show. If anyone ever watched uh, Power Rangers and in this, he like he made cheesy Billy, uh, Billy Banks or Billy Blanks, whatever kind of videos like Tybo videos. But they were hip hop keto and he became a millionaire out of that. Um, but, you know, and the machine empire takes over and all this stuff. I mean, you kind of get to see like everything really kind of went bad and it plays off of the fact this is really interesting because I honestly never thought about this, but these guys did, you know, that made this movie. And believe me, the effects, the effects are as good as dead on. They are as good as any uh, Hollywood production could be. And, and uh, uh, you know, plenty of plenty of people are in it. Uh, James Vanderbeek, is that the guy from Dawson's Creek? Uh, he's in it. Uh, the woman that played Starbuck in the new Battlestar Galactica, uh, she's there. I mean, it, it's star stud cast does a great job. So, uh, boy, where was I with this? Anyway. I don't know what I was about to say, but it was it's it's really, really intense. They spared no expense on this. Oh, that's what I was going to say, is that the they toyed with the notion that think of just how fucked up it is that you have Zordon from Power Rangers, you know, who he's like that floating head. OK, the leader. And he gives this power. You know, he pretty much arms a bunch of teenagers to fight in an intergalactic war. Like, think how screwed up that, that story is when you think about it in that sense. And, but that's exactly what it is, is you're giving these teenagers this power and you're turning them into soldiers at the ages of like 15, 16, 17, however old they were. OK, yeah, that's that that's pretty fucked up. And you're going to end up with some fucked up individuals out of that. And so that's what you in large in large part end up with uh, in this film. So I don't want to give everything away that happens in it because I'd love for you to check it out. There's a link in the show notes to where you can at least get one of the versions, uh, you know, checked out uh, about it and watch it. So, but Tommy, of course, the Green Ranger is in it and he is in many ways like the only real hero. I can tell you that much, uh, which isn't shocking. Tommy's kind of kind of the favorite um, of the bunch. So, uh, but, but it, it did it. it by and large in 13 minutes or so, however long it was, they, they really pulled off a lot of what I like to have seen. Now, I would have appreciated a lot more sex in it, um, but it was definitely very gritty, incredibly adult. In fact, there was a great line where James Vanderbeek, he's playing a Rocky, the, the, the red Ranger. He's not playing Jason, uh, but you find out what happened to Jason in this. And he, you know, he says, it's like, do you want to know why the machine empire took over? It's because they could make better meth. And I was just like, I hear that. I'm like, oh, my God, because <laughs> <You know? laughs> that's so like dark and so adult. Uh, it was is really the, 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 the kind of intensity that I was looking for to take with one of these products, because some of these products are really like deep and great and well thought out universes. But the thing is, is they get pitched to, you know, to the census or, you know, to to. to to censorship, I mean, to, to, to children, to where, oh, we got to be careful. We don't talk about this. We don't talk about this, you know, and, and we don't do this. And, and it's, it's just it's so crazy when some of these ideas were if you took them and you brought them, you know, to where they can really flourish. 
you know, and and believe me, if you're going to show that, and it, it's so much bullshit. Everybody talks about this all the time, but it, you know, it's worth mentioning again. The fact of like how there's just constant, almost nonstop fighting in Power Rangers, but you can't show like people kissing barely. You know, I mean, you can't even do that. You know, and so have everybody grow up a bit, and then have have the content grow up, have everything kind of match up. I. I just thought it was great. So unfortunately, uh, Saban Entertainment is trying to take it down. They've already got it taken down on Vimeo. The creators have made it very, very clear that they are not making any money off of this. They totally did this for fun. In fact, it's a, a popular series of things called the bootleg universe where they, you know, they take these great properties that Hollywood just can't seem to get right. And they make them right and they do it right in, in relatively short films. And they often do. They even did a, a Judge Dredd, the, the same group, uh, did a Dredd series. They, they did a Punisher one, they, you know, a whole bunch of these. And they really did a far better job than Hollywood does. And that's interesting. I wonder, it does raise a great question as to why. Why can't Hollywood get it right? Like, what, what exactly is the agenda in Hollywood that they just can't fucking make the movie or, you know, or the, you know, the, the revamp or reboot or remake, whatever, uh, that people want. I mean, you can ask these people, you can ask the fans at conventions. There's, you know, thousands of them say, Hey, you know, so what would you like to see in a Star Trek movie or in a new Star Wars movie or something like that? And they'll tell you. And even to some degree, there's often, uh, some consensus on how that works, but for whatever reason, it just, it, it never happens. If the whole push is for them to just make sales, well then go, go listen to the fans and, and they'll tell you what they want. You know what they want. Now you could say, well, they got to make it popular for everybody. You know, they can't just appease uh, the dorks or, you know, the nerds, the geeks, whatever phrase you want to use uh, for that, which maybe we should talk about that. Cause I'm getting tired of that word, the word nerd getting used around, you know, like it, like the word hack does. Okay. Um, you know, maybe they feel that way, but the the sense I'm getting from everybody is everybody's claiming to be a fucking dork now. So, you know, then then just appease all of them. Or is that all bullshit? I don't know. But anyway, so this was great. I want to I'd love to see more of this. There's a whole slew of properties that I would see love to get this really hard edged, uh, you know, and especially to make it a sequel. Like, you know, by and large, I mean, maybe they disregarded. I mean, I don't even pay attention to admittedly. I don't even pay attention to what comes out, uh, you know, after pretty much after Power Rangers in space, more or less once once Tommy left and after Lost Galaxy, I couldn't care less. Well, I liked SPD, but I couldn't care less what happened in Power Rangers after that. So certainly. But I mean, but to at least treat the original some form of the original as being, you know, canon as being legit. Uh, boy, that's the way to do it. I mean, nice work. Nice damn work. This is one of the best uh, independent films I've seen made ever. Just straight up ever. It was really, really well done. I can't recommend it enough. Uh, probably the only thing comparable as far as class would be uh, Star Trek Continues, which is fucking amazing, which is another case where people know what they want in Star Trek. And amazingly, Star Trek Continues delivers it with a minuscule budget at that. You know, and it is insanely popular. What the hell's going on at CBS and Paramount? I don't know. So, but in any case, I'm glad this stuff's getting developed. I'm glad that the kind of the, in much ways, the, the democratization, uh, for lack of a better phrase, of not as in democracy, okay, but the democratization of software and, and the hardware in general has gotten to the point where all of this stuff can be done uh, by, you know, 
just by by very small teams. You don't need a whole production company. You can get it, like we mentioned earlier, how Instagram is made with 13 people, DuckDuckGo, you know, an entire search engine that, that spans the planet is run by a 20 man, a 20 person team. Okay. As to where the, you know, these movies can be get made with incredibly small teams, movies that blow away anything Hollywood puts out there. And they do it right. And they please a really harsh critic like myself. I mean, especially when it comes to like things that I'm really passionate about, like Transformers, you know, Star Wars, Star Trek or Power Rangers or Buck Rogers or Galactica or something. I mean, to make me happy, boy, you got to deliver the goods. And they did it. Uh, I'm, I'm really impressed. So I hope this kind of thing happens more. I hope this kind of thing gets, you know, crowdsourcing, uh, you know, crowdfunding. I hope that it gets a lot of that. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm benefiting from this, from the very same technology that allowed this movie to get made. I'm benefiting from as well, because uh, I'm allowed to be a one person game development company. You know, I mean, that's exciting that we can do this sort of things that we, that we can do these creative pursuits. They're phenomenal. It's a really, really exciting time. But it's interesting. Keep in mind, look at how the old guard is freaking the fuck out. Look at how Saban is, you know, just terrified that this is getting out there. Oh, but kids might see it. So what, What? I mean, are we just supposed to be stunted into some, you know, like a, a level of like, like constant youth or something? I mean, I was a kid and I watched Power Rangers, but I'm growing up now, but I still like Power Rangers. I'd like to see grown up Power Rangers. Thank you. Oh, they're, they're, they're so scared. The intellectual property debate is something that needs to be handled. You know, we mentioned earlier about T uh, Ted Nelson with Xanadu. Uh, that would have been interesting to see if he could have solved uh, some degree of the IP debate, you know, just with, uh, with a very open technology like Xanadu is supposed to be. But maybe we can do that now. Maybe that's something we can solve here. But check this movie out. It's fucking brilliant. I mean, it was so, so good. Katie Sackhoff, she was amazing. The whole thing was great. Uh, so give it a watch. Anyway, Carpe Lucem, everybody. Don't forget, if you're, for some, by chance, you're hearing this, because I'll probably release this a day early, and you're at Liberty Forum, come and see me, baby, and I'll see you on the other side. You just experienced Sovereign Tech. Go to SovereignTech.com, that's S-O-V-R-Y-N-Tech.com, and connect with us there. Find links from today's show, and catch our podcast feed. Sovereign Tech is copy heart. Copying art is an act of love, and love is not subject to law. So please, share the show however you like. Welcome to The Evolution. Evolution.